Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Culture and the City Podcast Series. My very special guest today is the extraordinary, I think, Samaya Valley, who at a very early age has already had some amazing achievements under her belt. She's the founder of Counterspace, an architectural studio in Johannesburg, where she is from, and which she obviously loves and is passionate about, and we hear all about that. But she's also the youngest person to be invited to design the Serpentine Pavilion in London in 2021, a very prestigious appointment where her designs were very well received, and we'll talk about that. But her latest assignment, I think, is really fascinating. She is involved in curating the world's first Islamic arts biennale in 2023. So our conversation is wide-ranging, but I called it Cultures of Resilience because Samir is very interested in the way the cities bring cultures together and enable them to express themselves even in hostile climates. And in the Serpentine Pavilion, she was inspired by this idea of the culture of resilience that was formed in London from a variety of ethnic minorities, perhaps, who um, found themselves asserting their identity in the city, perhaps even waging struggles for their independence from the colonial master, from the very heart of the empire. London is a great paradoxical city for that, and we talk about that. So she's very interested in the way cities bring people together and gather and create new societies and culture at the heart of the modern city. This really inspires her and her work reflect this. I think this is a really wonderful conversation of international interests. Please join us. Samaya Valley, very nice to meet you. I'm Tim Williams. So lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's delightful. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about your very interesting work uh, and we'll talk about the Serpentine Pavilion. We'll talk about the Islamic Arts Biennale. We'll talk about uh, Counterspace, which I think is mm -hmm. your company, your initiative, and we'll talk about your your background and your take on the world. And uh, I'll start with this idea. We the idea behind the Culture in the City podcast that we're doing um, is, you know, that cities are very much where places where cultural innovation takes place, but also that they're places where cultures mix, and you, you sometimes end up with something completely unique that is based entirely on that kind of city identity and that brings people together and I I like that idea very much and I also are very keen that we have conversations with people that uh, you know I don't want us to be parochial in this discussion and just think about just western models and just think about you know I'm a bit of an urbanist and there's a tendency in my my world to think about European and North American models but I live in Australia and I'm from uh, Wales originally so I, I am myself um, you know um, not parochial at all and I and I and I'm very keen that we we talk about uh, what what I think will become majority experiences which are really not you know the the kind of European and North American model so I thought well you're you strike me as very interesting in all this uh, context because you are you come from a very interesting uh, background yourself and you're playing uh, on an international stage in a, in a very a very formative way. So I'd like to talk to you about some of the work that you've been doing and some of the stuff you've got ahead of you, if that's okay. Um, so uh, first off, um, many people will know of you now because of the Serpentine Pavilion, um, which is very beautiful and fantastic work, if I might say so. And I, you know, I'm, I'm working for one architectural practice. I'm a bit of a phony, by the way. I'm a historian, not a. No, I've got nothing to do. I'm not, I sort of. I pass myself off as somebody who knows things about stuff like cities, but I'm not really an architect or a planner. But I do think that your your work in Serpentine, which I uh, I saw, is uh, fantastic. And uh, I'd like to talk a bit about that first because I saw you were interviewed on this subject by I think Goldman Sachs, and um, you said something really interesting about your intention behind that work and, and how it you wanted it, in a sense, for London to speak to London. Um, could you say a bit about your intention behind that, uh, the Serpentine? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm so delighted that you got to see it and I'm even more delighted that I'm speaking with a historian. Um, I also, uh, I think one of the many things I wanted to be alongside becoming an architect is historian and archaeologist, I really am so interested in stories and in the potential of architecture to be a powerful storytelling device. So, so it's an honor to be speaking with you and, and to have the opportunity to reflect on, on my work with you. 
Um, yes, yeah, so the, 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 the story of the Serpentine Pavilion, and as you said rightly, I had this intent and this idea that I wanted to be able to um, work with London in London and show London to London. And I'm really interested in a, in a deeply local engagement that is not parochial, because I think if we truly think about all the depths and the deep layers behind the word local and uh, behind our understandings of local, they really do extend and have tentacles across the world. And London's history is synonymous with migrations. It's also, of course, the heart of um, a once global industrial empire, and it has all the implications of um, geographies from across the world also having deep entanglements with London. And so I wanted to somehow work with this idea. And when I started working on research for the pavilion, I was really drawn to waves of migrations in London. And I started to think about places that became important for people to construct home and to construct belonging when they first moved to the city. Um, and the work that some of these urban, small urban infrastructures did to be able to act as infrastructures of community or to work to bring people together. So some of the first mosques, African churches, synagogues, but then also, um, you know, places like kosher butcheries or marketplaces where someone could find an ingredient that is important to a traditional recipe. Um, some of the first venues to play black music in London or the Centre Price Publishing House, which um, was a, a radical a publishing house at the time and, and published a lot of black literature as well. Um, the Four Aces Club in Dalston, which is the first venue to play black music, spaces where people could listen to something in their mother tongue, like cinema that had um, screenings from in different languages and from different countries. So I worked with mapping all of these places out. Um, I worked with a list of 52 at the time and then started to think about the gestures of generosity embedded in these. So sometimes um, more formal architectural gestures in formalized spaces, sometimes they were, for example, um, porch steps that became important for neighbors to meet and organize at the time of protest in Brixton, for example. Um, but then also lots of informal gestures like um, a surface being unfurled into the street around the time of the Grenfell silent marches where people came together to break fast in, in solidarity. Um, and many, you know, many market canopy structures that facilitate people to meet and transact and talk to each other. Um, so I work with many different spatial gestures and I work to kind of bring them together into these gathering structures that form spaces to sit and gather in the pavilion at different scales, from the scale of an intimate one-to-one -one conversation to a broader group discussion or conversation. And then of course, those all um, in the circular form of the pavilion face onto each other to create a, a larger gathering of London. I, I love all this. Uh, partly you had me at the word London because I, I spent 25 happy years in, in London. I also think that you capture something that you know, at the moment we're all um, thinking about um, things like empire and, and call it colonialism, but at the same time, London has been a place where resistance took place and where, where actually cultures um, and leaderships uh, from some of these communities were formed uh, there and then became, you know, sort of helping their, their countries and their cultures develop independently. But a lot of it took place in London. It's the paradox of London, I think, that you capture really well. You know, it's 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 not these these are not just histories of defeat. These are histories of resistance, and absolutely. And, and some of it takes place at the Imperial Centre. It's a very interesting idea. And I also think the I love the idea of the the kind of layer upon layer of 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 differences in London. By the way, I have to tell you that as a Welshman, I always feel, <laughs> I always feel slightly sensitive about these matters because, of course, uh, London is a Celtic Welsh name and the Welsh were there before the English uh, arrived and uh, mm -hmm. they, kicked, they kicked us out in the sixth century. So I feel like re reclaiming, every time I go there, I feel like reclaiming this as my, as my capital. But, but I, I love the mm -hmm. fact that you reflect and respect 
the varieties of, of history and the paradox of history in London and the fact that it's migration created by my, migrants really and and London mm. is a unique kind of combination of all these factors absolutely i think it's so it's so important to reflect on that and to realize the resilience of people who really yeah. came together despite so much and worked to um evolve the project of, of freedom and democracy and in, in in various different regions but also through cultural production is something really important that I wanted to be able to focus on and all forms of cultural production whether those are found in recipes and songs and stories or uh, forms of literature and forms of communication um, music uh, radio stations the the setting up of for example um, the West Indian Gazette the Calypsos um, in Notting Hill uh, you know how places also somehow were able to hold different forms of home and where the relationship between host and home is really starting to be blurred and becoming more and more hybrid because people carried um, things and traditions from different places but they also found ways to make home in London differently at the same time they held both places in one or many places in, in one um, and this is something I think even what, what you when you talked about uh, thinking about resistance I'm really reminded of resistance through joy and through cultural production I'm South African and so much of our history uh, so much of our struggle history really is also um, told through people like Huma Sakela and Maria Makeba um, through Radio Freedom. You know, we really have a strong legacy and history of uh, homes being um, places where the resistance was talked about. Uh, people came together in Shabins, they came together on street corners all of these places start to become real uh, strongholds and places where people discussed politics where people uh, moved intellectual movements um, and by that I'm, I'm really interested there in a broad stroke idea of what um, an intellectual movement is or what the, what what form different for how different forms of cultural production manifest um, but absolutely I think stories of resistance and working from places of aspiration rather than only as only places of of issue is something that's really important I, lo I love all this I could talk to you for hours about this, about this but it's partly because um, I've lived in Dalston and I've lived in Brixton and uh, the, the the interesting thing about the Imperial Centre of London is that it had so many of the nationalities go there and they they, mm. they find other people from the same background and they create these communities there that then play back to where they come from. I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the Bangladesh community in East London, in Tower mm -hmm. Hamlets, and they're, they're all deeply connected, you know, from mm. their, often from their public housing in Tower Hamlets into, you know, uh, they're actually got a huge economic sway over uh, Silet in in, uh, in in Bangladesh, and mm. they're quite important politically. So so it struck me, Samir, that and I think you've talked about this. You, you you have a process of research that you're deeply into in in terms of um, when you do your uh, architecture and your sort of manifestation of these ideas. You're actually deeply into research, aren't you? Yeah, that's been synonymous with my practice uh, from the beginning. I'm, I'm really interested in working with research practices uh, alongside architectural practice to kind of move architecture into different directions and being from Johannesburg being on the African continent in particular I think it's really important that we do work with the conditions we have with the inspirations that we have found in our context and our conditions and move them into architectural practice because we really I think uh hold the burden of and the, the also struggle I think with with having bodies of knowledge that have been inherited with having an architectural fabric that is largely inherited as well but at the same time we have so many incredible rich and vibrant vibrant situations and conditions of course found in um 
what's called the informal urban landscape, but also found in ways of being and in rituals that people have, in ways that they find uh, space for those in the city. I'm talking about traditional healing and talking about supernatural practice and so on. All of those have really important and interesting ingredients and are waiting to be translated into architectural form. And so even, you know, when when we first got the um, the letter from the Serpentine to make a submission, I really had to think deeply about what that would mean and what it would look like for a practice like mine, because um, much more so than having a formal manifesto, I'm really interested in how these ideas translate. And, and I'm interested in Johannesburg. My entire lens for seeing the world is shaped through that. So I had to think about how to translate that Johannesburg way of thinking into London. And strangely enough, um, it manifested as wanting to translate London and wanting to work to translate place. But it's very interesting. The um, Sometimes, what's that uh, great phrase that, um, what do those of England know who only England know? Um, the uh, so it's really always useful, I think, to, for people to come to the, these places with different perspectives. And let's talk about your background a bit because you do have a very unusual background as well. Because although you're, as you said, you're from uh, Johannesburg and you're from South Africa, and I should say to people, by the way, um, it's not often understood that I think it's I think I'm right in saying that uh, ten of the fifteen fastest growing cities on the planet are in Africa at this point in time, and that uh, you know Africa is the is the next urban story that people need mm -hmm. to think about, that the, the next big global cities are going to be in Africa. And, I, uh, and But you come from, I think, an Indian background as, uh, in, in, in Johannesburg. So you've got, had an interesting kind of hybrid experience yourself. Uh, how has that shaped you? Has it shaped you? I think it has. Um, this is only on reflection, I think, because so much of the work that I've been doing over the years has been really intuitive um, and of course now that I think about it there are certain intuitions that are related to different aspects of my identity and how hybrid that is and this condition of always being in between um, but when I when I first started working of course they you know these are in intuitive interests that I couldn't even articulate um, at the time uh, but yes I am my heritage is Indian my grandparents all came from India. Uh, my grandfather migrated to South Africa when he was six, and I think it was just before the time of partition. He came from Gujarat in India. And um, I am born in Pretoria in South Africa. I grew up in a, an Indian-only township called Lodium. Uh, during apartheid, it was Indian-only. And uh, Yes, and, and I moved to Johannesburg, and Johannesburg is really my city. It's the place that made me fall in love with architecture and architectural practice over and over again. And I'm really interested in all the architectures in the city um, that exist on top of, around, in and amongst the formal architectural fabric that we have in the city. It's just such an incredible, fantastic city with so many conditions that, as I said, are waiting to be translated into design form. There's so much conceptual richness there. And as a student, I always resisted this idea that everything we can ever imagine has already been done, because I absolutely agree with you. I think that there are so many um, things that have hybridized because of the different places people have come from, because of um, uh, you know, f finding ways to be able to translate ways of being in and amongst uh, hybridizing with the formal fabric and so on, that is starting to produce new conditions. And those conditions, yeah. I think we haven't yet explored the full potential of how they can manifest architecturally yet. I think that's brilliant, by the way, because I think people, um, you, you have, people outside South Africa might have an idea that they think they know about South Africa, but it's it's an incredible. I mean, I don't know what the exact metaphor would be, but it's a it's become a, a melting pot of so many different uh, cultures and languages. And Joburg, in particular, I would have thought is a very interesting mixture of all these things. But one of the things that's also very interesting for an international audience, by the way, somewhere is 
you're very you're very passionate and excited about the Johannes book, but we we tend to read about it in a, in a different way internationally. That we, we see it as problematical, you know, uh, because of the some of the um, what we read in the papers uh, around mm -hmm. um, crime and all this kind of stuff. But you you you, you I'm very delighted and, and and not a little surprised, but very impressed by the idea that you still love your the Joburg and and you think it's got great potential. I, I guess. Of course, I think um, many, 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 many cities, all of the, the continent that I've been to is, um, as you said, really what's next and what is the future. It's already embedded in so many of these places. I don't want to romanticize for a second the amount of challenge that we have, and especially that we have in Johannesburg, because of the legacies of colonization and apartheid and so many of those things that we read about in the papers so so much of crime and and so so many of our challenges really still come from um, the legacy of apartheid that we're still living with we still have uh, deeply ingrained uh, economic suppression and so on because these things are generational um, and they don't shift overnight with the with democracy our constitution of course has is 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 really quite amazing and and really incredible i think it's it it should be held as a beacon for the rest of the world to look up to in as far as constitutions go but our spaces are still rife with the challenge and um with the challenges of dealing with all of these issues i think what the excitement points to is the resilience of people, the resilience of uh, these rituals, the resilience of these ways of being um, that have developed in our cities. And that's something that I think we really need to be able to give attention to. We, we need to be able to learn how to learn from these things. And for that, I think we need to develop entirely different architectural tools, ways of reading, seeing, drawing. We haven't yet um, been taught to read these things. In fact, we've been taught precisely the opposite. We've been taught to look a in a particular fashion, which then makes us blind to the conditions that we really have that are very interesting for us to be able to work with. But South Africa, you, sorry, you, I just wanted to add, yeah. South Africa is um, extremely uh, unequal by design many of our cities and spaces are really unequal by design and that's something that's also i think always present in my work because i think that's something that exists everywhere um but it's something that we really see in south africa and we know it was ingrained in our in our planning and we live with those legacies in our city every day and so if we understand that, we can also understand that architecture has the power for the opposite. It has the power to bring people together. It has the power to convene people. And we do need to focus a lot more on that because I think architects have become really complacent. I think in some, in some ways, I want to say that the profession has kind of lost a conviction in, in, in true architectural gestures and um we, we we need to be able to think deeply about the power of architecture to bring people together because it has the power as we know to segregate i love i love this the um one of the things that um we've been thinking about um in grimshaw uh, hook, hooked i think onto the the global pandemic and, and what should the response to it be is that um we need to be promoting sociability um almost as never before and understanding the role that uh, the built environment can you know will have to play uh, in in a, in attracting people for example back to to city centers and and to mix with each other again and, you know even in london i was in london a couple of weeks ago and only 40 50 percent of people are back in the offices um and so you know there's a real issue around stranded uh, physical assets going on in a city so people are some people are enjoying enormously, you know, the, what I regard as the, the narcissism of home, home working, because I'm a great believer in the, the humanity of, of cities and mixing and, you know, the, the source of our greatest triumphs through mixing with each other. So I'm a bit worried that we're not mixing with each other, but I completely agree with you that I think architecture uh, in, in my, my language needs to step up 
<laughs> again uh, and to I think I, I heard you use a word in a previous interview about like architecture has been weaponized before you know for for like mm -hmm. uh, anti-social stuff but it can also be weaponized for social purposes and I can I think that's really a powerful argument I also think I love the idea that the future is is going to be described in in a place like Johannesburg um and uh, and not not and not just in the usual suspect places I I actually do think that I mean I, I think um it's funny I was, you made me reflect a little there you might be surprised I I, I come from uh it's funny it's not considered a very exotic part of the world but I assure you it is is I come from um, a kind of mining town in in South Wales originally and um it doesn't have any iconic architecture in most of the uh, like a million and a half people will live in in these mining areas but it has two things it has an amazing uh kind of ex uh, community expression through residential development and through the communities that have been created in this place it's it's a it's a very egalitarian kind of kind of culture um but it's interesting that there, everybody is now thinking through the next phase of development what happens next after we've got through this pandemic and what does it mean for our places what does it mean for our communities and um uh and i'm not going to ask you to give us a you know the, the solution to all these things but do you think that architecture is going to play quite an important part in the next city that we 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 have to design to make you know and, and the sociability that we have to think about because i i don't know if you agree with me but i, I cities without sociability and cities without people strike me as a a contradiction in, in terms so totally i think architecture is already playing a key role in how the sociability sociability is um, developing and unfolding if we think for a moment that we are at the mercy of politics only that we are only at the mercy of of planning structures and so on then we've completely lost our agency because i think um Architecture is always a manifestation of politics and of ideals. And if we fall into a certain kind of politics, if we fall into certain modes and methods, then we're perpetuating those politics. And if we work to resist them, then we're creating different dynamics and different sets of politics. So I absolutely agree. I think um, whether we believe it or we don't believe it or we know it or we don't know it, we're always implicated in those in those ideals and in manifesting them, and we need to be more aware of that so that we can um, step up, as you're saying, to use your terms. I think that's a that's a really fantastic phrase because it's absolutely what we need to do. I also think you're evoking the, the the tradition of architects as city makers and city shapers. You know the the, the, the and people who don't just do wait for tenders but actually originate projects. And I think that's quite important. You're, I love the word agency. I think it's really important. I, I'm a big believer. My own politics are really about, you know, I come I, to, to evoke that background I come from. I come from a, you know, a, an incredibly political, rather left of centre working class community uh, in South Wales that was full of its own agency and was hugely collective, you know, created trade unions and it created great, you know, cultural expression. So I'm a big believer that in in the word agency i've seen it in in my my lifetime and we mustn't be passive at this moment there are there are great opportunities as well as challenges out there now on that subject of agency you created your own company uh which is counter space comparatively uh, an early age if i might say so so could you explain uh what the idea was behind uh the the company that you started what's its ethos so the studio was started um, when I was still a student with a group of friends, and we really were very, very interested in Johannesburg, all of us. We loved being in the city and we were very inspired by uh, having the time and space also to look at the city, to be in the city, to think deeply about the conditions in the city. And we spent an immense amount of time being in the city and then talking about our experiences of Johannesburg and our learnings from Johannesburg. And um, I think when we were nearing the end of our, of our master's year, we did feel, well, I certainly felt like 
I was afraid that I would move out of school and into practice and I could see the practice landscape around me. And I felt very strongly that another kind of practice needed to be born, but that I wasn't seeing that anywhere. And I didn't, I was afraid to move into practice and become uh, jaded. And so Counterspace was an initiative and an endeavor to keep that research flame alive and to keep that love for Johannesburg alive, really. Um, and also embedded in the term Counterspace, I think is the idea that we wanted to create another space alongside the space that exists already, where we were bringing about different ideas, different canon, um, different forms of the architectural discipline. You know, I think we've always been very interested in research practice. We've always worked collaboratively and in an interdisciplinary fashion with with lots of other um, skills and collaborators and with the city also um, as an inherent partner in dialogue and in collaboration. And so it started as as that, as a kind of side initiative alongside my full-time teaching job and um, working full-time in, in a museum and narrative practice as well, um, which both of those interests also started to feed into the practice and then became more and more um, a thing of, of its own as time went on. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, Culture and the City series, with your host, Tim Williams. I mean, I love, by the way, I hadn't realised that um, quite until this discussion, and I read a bit about you, but um, this, that the, the catalyst is, is the love of place um, and that a particular place that, are, that you grew up in and that you are still passionate about. And what I wanted to say about that, and I, then I want to come to your, I have to say to you, you, you only seem to be doing great things, you know, <laughs> because you, you've been doing the Serpentine, and then you've now got this Islamic Arts Biennale, which is like an amazing thing to be involved in in my in my view but the uh, we'll come back to that but I, I thought you might like this idea there's a, a very good book uh, written by a guy called Goodhart and he talks about there being two kinds of people at the, at the moment one is the um, anywhere people and then there's the somewhere people and that the anywhere people uh, who tend to be quite powerful actually and they they they, they you know probably people uh, I've I, I got a a pretty fancy education and, and a lot of people in my background are, can go anywhere and all this kind of stuff you know but I actually care a lot about the somewhere people the uh, the people that I grew up with who actually very proudly uh, in, in, uh, are in are involved with the future of a place and they, they don't they're not anywhere people they're somewhere people if you can combine these two two things you know with it, and I think your London pavilion you know expresses a, a kind of respect for the individuality of a, of a place. But I, I put a proposition to you that it's sometimes important if you're going to be telling other people about their place that you kind of love and know your place. And I, and I, I, I kind of, I, I like the spirit of this. I, I think uh, you're, a, you're a somewhere person, but you can work anywhere uh, because, <laughs> because you're grounded and you have roots. And I think that's, oh, I love I think that's really, no, I mean, I, I, I like that a lot. So, um, because okay, well that's good. So let's let's move on. No, the... I was thinking as you were saying when you started describing an anywhere person, I thought I hope I'm that. And then when you started describing a somewhere person, I said I hope I'm that too. Exactly. And I wonder, um, we all I think we all are perhaps degrees of a somewhere and an anywhere person. Yeah. But we need to also maybe operate with more of an understanding that we all are somewhere and anywhere people because we. We need to be able to understand the importance of, of somewhere, the importance of place, the importance of listening to and expressing place rather than projecting in a kind of colonial fashion our own ideas of what that place is. But we also need to, I think, on the one hand, take agency from the idea of anywhere, also to build empathy with everywhere. Yeah. And so, you to be able to understand that we're also implicated in anywhere, we have relations to, 
to people all over the world. We have relations to everybody that we meet and every um, place and every engagement that we have. In that, I think, is the opportunity to build connections between people. And that's something that's really important too, because places are all connected to each other. Geographies through history have been connected uh, for good and for bad through trade, through labor and extraction. We're all intertwined. So I like that, and I, but I think I think this is another conversation, but but a, and a great philosophical one. But I think uh, what I love about the Bangladeshi community in in Tower Hamlets is that it's at the same time as being very involved in Bangladesh politics and culture and a, and a bit in the Islamic world, it's actually very London. You know, it's a very it's a kind of very London version mm-hmm. of an international culture. And I think that, I think you're right. I think the modern world, at its best, is where you've got a bit of grounding and a bit of roots in something but but you're also you know involved in a in a, in a less parochial conversation learning from from everybody yeah. I, I think the in architectural terms is interesting the uh i guess uh and i this is where i'm i'm, I'm hesitant to say anything about architecture i'll get killed by my mates uh in <laughs> in in grimshaw who do know something about these matters but there there is a a kind of um, we, we we don't want to just on the one hand there's kind of an an international modernist blandness uh, you know which is like all the build all buildings in that tradition sometimes look the same and they just plonked anywhere on the other hand you you want to avoid a, a kind of kitsch vernacular thing and so I think this conversation between internationalism and and rootedness and between modernism and and vernacular, if you like, is is the big conversation of, of of the moment. It seems to me where we're trying to build bridges. And you strike me as a very good example of of this thing about being anywhere and somewhere at the same time. We need to we need to be both. And I, I like that. Mm-hmm. On that subject, we move on to, and maybe this is the last bit of the conversation. But this is your next big adventure, which is uh, you're you're involved in the in the curation of the Islamic Arts Biennale. Um, could you yes. say what? Could you say what that is? Because I think I'm. I think it's the first. Yeah. Uh, it's the first one. I'll get to that in a second. What I'm going to say now, I think, also relates to the way that I've been thinking about the Islamic Biennale. But the most important thing for me about the pavilion was that, on the one hand, it worked to fold London into the pavilion, but it also worked to fold the pavilion out into London because um, a natural research relationship developed with some of the places that I was working with. And um, we then worked with fragments of the pavilion that were located in some of these community arts institutions in London, the Tabernacle in Notting Hill, the Albany in Deptford, um, the Valence Library in Barking and Dagenham, and New Beacon Books in Finsbury Park. Each of them had a specific function that was tied to the place. And I think work to lift out of the shadow, really important work that was happening in some of these places and bring them to different audiences through the Serpentine. And so we're still working even now on collaborations with many of these arts organizations and institutions. I'm working at the moment a lot with um, something that will happen around the time of Carnival in honor of Notting Hill Elders, who started um, Carnival. And um, we also recently ro- launched a radio station at the Valence Library in Barking and Dagenham uh, that's tied to the Serpentine's ongoing program there um, and tied to their long-term work with, with radio ballads. And um, I say that to say that I think that what my architectural practice has worked to learn or is working to learn is also a logic that is kind of diasporic and that draws on the ways of being and the intelligences in being somewhere and anywhere and at the same time um, and I'm, I'm constantly thinking about different ways that that can manifest and how we can work intelligently with that kind of structural thinking to develop and seed different ways of interacting. And so the fragments of the pavilion uh, were really about bringing different realms of conversation into the same conversation, different realms, different uh, participants in the dialogue um, together. And uh, on the Islamic Arts Biennale, of course, this is also an interest that I'm working to bring in. And I, I wanted to, when I was first approached for the Biennale, 
I really wanted to think about how we can work with embodied experiences and how we can think about um, creativity from an Islamic perspective that hasn't, that isn't necessarily only tied to objects or styles or traditions or geographies, but really thinks about the philosophies and the methods and the intelligences behind some of the practices and how we can work with those. And so uh, the way that we've worked to define it or the, what I'm working on at the moment is thinking through um, the theme of the Biennale, which is called Awal Beit, and which means first house. Um, this theme really refers to this heart in Saudi Arabia, Mecca and the Kaaba, as a place that the Islamic world refers to. On a, on a metaphysical level, we always refer to it through our rituals, through these invisible lines of direction, through our unpackings of time and so on, uh, the way that um, our rituals work with the movement of the sun and the moon, how they're always tied to the cosmos. Um, there's a kind of universal understanding that every time we stand up in prayer, we're in a universal gathering with people from around the world. And so the first set of experiences is this really godly um, experience of Islam, if you will. It's thinking about these some of these deeper meanings and philosophies and so on. The second set of experiences are about a human spirituality and really think through uh, infrastructures of gathering, forms of sharing food and forms of community, sound, really reflecting on the idea that this was a place that the entire world passed through um, and that it became a place of cultural exchange and cultural production. But even for people who have never been there, um, the site holds some kind of meaning and the source has traveled around the world. So if you will, there's also a diasporic logic in that. And we're also working to reflect on many different forms of migrations and thinking through um, how these rituals travel. And, and so much more than thinking just about static architectures as they've been described, as Islamic art has, has been described for so long by certain kinds of gazes and, and, and through the lens of uh, very specific geographies or styles or traditions. I'm thinking about the essences of these rituals and um, and how those manifest. What are the infrastructures of gathering and coming together in Islam, and how how do those manifest as uh, how can they manifest as creative forms? And um, can I ask you? That sounds very interesting and, and quite slightly different to what I expected, and and for the reason that you would expect, which is that I I, I uh, partly because I am a historian uh, and partly because I do respect. Uh, the enormous contribution that Islamic culture made to the preservation of what we now think of as kind of Western knowledge, but uh, you know a lot of it came from the classical mm -hmm. Greek tradition and, and Persian stuff that was preserved, mm -hmm. as you know, in in, in Islam mm -hmm. when it when it was being destroyed in the West in the in the Dark Ages. You know, it's a kind of interesting history that we ultimately ended up getting a lot of the Renaissance stuff actually from. Contact with the Islamic Islamic world, and I'm so very interested in in some of the received cultural uh, traditions, but also the built environment uh, in in Islamic towns. Traditional ones were heavily influenced by that classical discourse mm. and uh, and and rationality. And uh, but you're you're taking it to the to the underlying kind of. Uh, uh, cultures of of engagement and collaboration and and being together and so you're actually going to find uh, what's, what am I thinking of non non architectural gestures and ways of of representing this or a, or a hybrid of 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 materials and ways of doing it is that what you're going to do right so um, yes I think absolutely the approach um, is hybrid and we have a lot of works that are to do with sound and that are oral and atmospheric. We also have a lot of commissions that I hope will be loved and will be experienced. So for example, we have gathering structures, we have forms of majlis, which translates to salon in English. Um, we have gathering tables. So we have a lot of works that are to do with experiences. At the same time, I must also say that I have incredible curatorial collaborators 
um, Dr. Julian Raby, who is an Islamic scholar and uh, used to be a director at the Smithsonian. We have Dr. Niaz Zalbar, who is an object expert at the VNA. Uh, we have Dr. Saad Al Rashid, who is a Saudi archaeologist. And all of them are bringing uh, traditional know-how and traditional expertise and incredible bodies and wealth, a wealth of knowledge that touch on some of the things that you described about the influence um, of, of the Islamic world historically. And many of the contemporary commissions will be in conversation with historical objects, archaeological finds. We also um, have our archaeologists working collaboratively with many of the artists as a research resource. And um, many of the artists are working interpretively with, with some of the research that, um, that he's bringing. And so, yes, I think the approach is hybrid. And of course, we want to be able to celebrate and learn from this incredible, these incredible traditions. But I also am thinking deeply, I hope, about the about having experiences that can connect with people's daily lives and that are universal and that anyone can connect with them, but also that highlight things that are meaningful um, about rituals that we have. And I think we can all be reminded of many of those, especially in this current time. I think that's really powerful and different and I need to ask you a prosaic question, which is, what's the timetable? What, what, uh, when could we? When, when is this going to happen? It's twenty twenty three, I think, isn't it? At some point. Yes, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that ah, at the moment, okay, but right. it's, it's due at the end of January. And it's going to be in Jeddah. Yes, the Biennale is in Jeddah. So um, let me ask you a few final questions about partly about that. Let's let's go there first. I think this is a very exciting commission for you and although I obviously you're part of a curatorial team um, mm. I think it's going to be I think it's really interesting and, and important that uh, a, a relatively young um, uh, if I might say so a female leader from South Africa actually is involved in this important Islamic modern Islamic initiative in in Saudi Arabia I think it's a really interesting in itself it's an interesting kind of coming together of a, some you know global uh stories which i really i really like and i'm sure you do um so that's that we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to that Samir, for the, uh, your work you'll build on the excellence uh, of the serpentine in a big way so we're looking forward to all that i want to just tie up some ideas that we discussed it's been a fantastic conversation by the way thank you very much one of the one of the most enjoyable ones we've had in this in this series i think i've i've learned that we we care about anywhere and somewhere and we need to bring these two things together because there's universal learning that we can get but mm -hmm. it's also really important to be meaningful at a kind of local you know place mm -hmm. level and, and and not to be simplistically universalizing you know there's there's differences that we need to respect and reflect but i think also mm -hmm. that uh, but i also think that we you know we um you know that that thing i said earlier on what does he of england knows that only england knows you know you, you, you actually represented some of the london story to Londoners in your serpentine thing. And I think that's a very valuable exercise. And I, I wanted to say something about that. Uh, by an amazing cosmic coincidence, guess where yeah. I was work guess where I was working for five years uh in, in East London. I was working for the good people of Barking and Dagenham. Um, oh wow. Yeah, and I can tell you a, a really important story. Uh, the the we were I was bringing I was working for an initiative that was all about bringing new investment and new infrastructure to East London. We ended up with the Channel Tunnel Rail Link. We ended up with uh, Crossrail, the new Elizabeth Line that's just opened up. We ended up with the Olympics in Stratford. But we also um, had certain challenges. And I thought you might be interested in this. We had certain challenges, mm -hmm. pretty inevitable challenges around migration and the response to migration uh, mm -hmm. in, in Barking and Dagenham. Barking and Dagenham, for those people who don't know, is about 15, 20 kilometers from the center of London to the east. It's a very working class community and was almost an entirely white community up until yes. about 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And there was an initial resistance to change in, in that area. Mm -hmm. But it was partly about the fact that this was a relatively poor community. There was a bit concerned about whether it would get jobs and housing. And, you know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's I think uh, this is my politics. It's very easy to condemn people for being 
anti-migration when you know they 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 face economic challenges. But the great thing about Barkin, Barkin and Dagenham was that the local community, having first been slightly you know uh, uh, actually attracted to the politics of reaction, resisted that, and then fought back and created a a, a welcoming culture uh, yeah. in in that area. And I think it's great. And, and wholly consistent with what I think about those people, that they mm -hmm. that your project reached out to the library in Barking and Dagenham because that's a real frontline area about the, about changing London as London becomes more even more international as it were. So I'm really mm -hmm. I just think it's an that's an amazing kind of coincidence. I care very deeply about Barking and Dagenham and about that part of London and in your work reached out to them. And I commend you for that because it's kind of forgotten part of London, you know, it's not a very glamorous part mm. of London. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so uh, excited and delighted to hear that you have this connection. I hope that you still have it and that you continue to work there because it is an incredibly rich um, place to work and to listen. Um, the stories that are in Barking and Dagenham are just really really incredibly inspiring and especially if we think about resilience um and we we talk about uh, you know how people have really found ways to resist and to continue and to develop and evolve and so on and uh, i must say that the work in barking and dagenham that i have done is in the legacy um, of amal khalaf's work at the serpentine she's done work in barking and dagenham for 10 years right. um, and even I, I, you know when I first made the submission for the pavilion it's interesting because Barking and Dagenham was even in the initial proposal and I really wanted to set up a radio station there so I'm really delighted that we've been able to but it really is um, you know kudos to Amal and inspired by her radio ballads program there. So what a great place to end on right which is that uh... I said at the beginning that I wanted us not to be parochial in this series of conversations and boy we haven't been we've gone from Johannesburg to London to Jeddah to Barking and Dagenham to South Wales where I'm from that's international mm. enough for me uh, but at the same time I think we've made a strong point about the need for uh, identity and character in a global context but it's still important to be uh, I guess the, the bridge between an anywhere and a somewhere person, and I think you might be a really good exemplar of that, uh, Samir. So I'm I'm really delighted that we've had this opportunity to talk and uh, to reflect on some of your great work and some of the stuff you're going to do next year. Thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the second series of the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City, with your host Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.